Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Andrew Gilden, Assistant Professor of Law at Willamette University College of Law. We will discuss his article, Copyrights Market Gibberish, which will appear in the Washington Law Review. So welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. <laughs> My pleasure. As you know, I've always been a huge fan of your work, which is always provocative and humorous at the same time, which is a great a great combination. Um, and I especially, I especially looked forward to reading this paper and enjoyed reading this paper because I heard you, uh, present an earlier version of it, um, <clears throat> and really piqued my interest. So I was wondering if we could start the conversation by, uh, you just telling listeners who may not be as steeped in, uh, copyright theory as we are. What is this market gibberish of what of which you speak? Sure. Uh, so the uh, so this paper is part of a series of papers about uh, uses of copyright uh, that have nothing to do with money or the traditional economic incentives argument for why we have copyright in the first place. Uh, so if you look in different contexts, like. Um, the use of sexual imagery, religious texts, political uh, uh, adversaries. Uh, we see copyright assertions that are motivated by something that's not about trying to make money off the contested use. Uh, and I've, I have another article coming out in um, uh, the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology called Sex, Death, and Intellectual Property, um, that makes sort of the normative case that it's okay to have some uses of copyrights that aren't about uh, uh, revenue streams. Uh, and the pushback I got from that article is, uh, one, I got a lot of pushback from it, but also, um, you know, the, the, there's this notion that, well, you know, that uh, privacy interests or sexual autonomy interests or even religious beliefs have no place in the copyright system. And what I do in this article is, is show that um, even if you don't want those interests to have a place in the copyright system, they already uh, are all over the case law. But what courts do when confronted with these I think, non-economic interests is use the language of markets to, to protect them. So um, if, for example, you have uh, uh, Brett Michaels trying to uh, stop the, the the publication of his um, of his sex tape with Pamela Anderson. Um, courts will say, well, he has the exclusive right to uh, utilize that market, even though he has said expressly that he has no interest in ever uh, occupying that space. Or if you look at any of the J.D. Salinger cases, uh, they're all framed in terms of a right uh, to decide whether to publish or not. Um, but the motivations behind those lawsuits are um, not about uh, revenue streams or economic incentives. It's about privacy. Um, where on the flip side, when you have um, a plaintiff like Cindy Garcia, who's trying to stop uh, the death threats from the Innocence of Muslims video, uh, courts say, well, she's not motivated really by economic interest. Um, therefore, her claim is denied. And what this article does is look at the way that courts, I'd say, contort market rhetoric to 
uh, include or exclude certain plaintiffs. So where does this idea come from then that copyright is exclusively about or should be exclusively about economic incentives? So um, one might say that it comes from the Constitution, <laughs> um, <laughs> that there, uh, that the Progress Clause, um, as, as many have argued, has sort of utilitarian um, uh, requirement, um, and it shows up in a lot of this, in, in actually a number of the Supreme Court cases from, uh, particularly in the 80s, Harper and Rowe, Sony case, talk about this economic justification of copyright law. Um, and that language has been initially used to expand copyright, uh, particularly around the Copyright Term Extension Act, the DMCA, that kind of more, more copyright, more incentives. Um, and then the pushback against that is, well, actually, maybe we need to limit copyright to situations where there only the situations where there's that economic incentives argument. Um, and you see that pushback happening in, in cases like Garcia v. Google. There's a fourth circuit case called Bond v. Bloom. Uh, in some of the the Hulk Hogan uh, lawsuit against Gawker, where courts say, okay, if there isn't this economic incentive, then there uh, shouldn't be a copyright claim. Um, and I'm looking at some of the, I think, unintended side effects of using economic incentives, not just as a justification, but also a limit for copyright. So, so how does this focus on economic incentives in relation to copyright protection sort of impact the dialogue or dialectic between courts and, and legal scholars writing in the area? Hmm. Well, I think it's a couple things. One, my, my primary, well, one of my concerns is that it makes copyright theory and copyright, actually more copyright jurisprudence, opaque, where courts say copyright law is about um, rights to, uh, exclusive rights in the marketplace. It's not about privacy interest. When courts are routinely protecting privacy interests through the language of markets. So uh, courts are doing something very different than what they're saying they're doing, um, mm. which makes it hard to actually um, intervene from e- either a lawmaking perspective or from a scholarly perspective. So there's a distortion uh, function that happens uh, with it. Um, and my one of my concerns is that actually some of the scholarly pushback against uh, kind of censorship, copyright as a, as a vehicle of censorship, uh, or sort of the overexpansion of copyright, uh, that, that sort of the scholarly concern gets used to block out claims of primarily people um, whose who don't have a uh, particularly strong market so that uh, copyright becomes even more of a tool for the powerful using some of the um, kind of first amendment critiques of copyright. So there's this weird, I think there's this weird feedback loop that happens when um, courts are not um, straightforward about what they're really doing in these cases. So to, to clarify, do you think the the problem then is that, this kind of market or economic rhetoric in a copyright context is obscuring from view what courts are actually doing, causing courts to make kind of bad normative decisions or kind of some combination of the two? 
Uh, yeah, I, I do think there is a there there is this obscuring function, uh, and to some degree, I think there is there is a a this results in some bad decision making. Uh, I do think um, that that what happens is that you have um, sometimes the, the market gibberish is allows. Um, a an attempt that is to really just squelch public discussion, like like for example the the JD Salinger cases where he's preventing uh, you know uh, very transformative takes on Cash from the Rye or biographical works, um, and that because he has the right to decide whether to exploit the market for his works. Whereas if you think of uh, some of let's say. Uh, you know, like a, a revenge porn plaintiff um, who may have who may have some very significant autonomy concerns, um, and uh, in my view, shouldn't be knocked out of the system, copyright system, because um, he or she can't um, conform their case to this need to make money off of, or this desire to make money off of the image in question. So, it both I think what it does it the market gibberish. Um, provides protection to people who uh, shouldn't have it and excludes people who might need it. Yeah. And that was one thing that I thought was really interesting about your paper was the way you used a a range of, of different kind of real world examples to show how courts seem to be at least my take on it or my sense of it was that you were pointing out how courts were almost using this market rhetoric as a cover for some kind of motivated reasoning. Um, like they were choosing who the winners and losers were going to be and then using the language of the market to figure out how to get there. Yeah. In, in, in ways that uh, in terms of in, in the very same litigation, they'll have completely different rhetoric to describe the, the same motivation. So um, part of the paper looks at uh, some of the, the Church of Scientology's lawsuits against uh, former members, both former members and news organizations that have published uh, some of their secret texts. And so when it's Scientology Church versus the Washington Post, the court is is like is hammers the the church for you know trying to uh, you know censor the press and that to say that you know there really is no interest in actually marketing this work these are secret texts there's not a copyright interest here um, but then when the, the when the defendant isn't the isn't a news organization it's actually one of the former a former member who has um, essentially sort of stolen texts and published them. The court says, "Oh well, um, you know, the, the the church has this right to decide whether to publish or not. They have the they have the right to this market. Um, the these leaked documents um, could impact that market, um, and which just doesn't actually map onto what um, is going on in, the, in in this case. So we see that the courts will use market rhetoric almost as a proxy for sort of a, a broader range of uh, of balancing." But a broader range of policy balances that's that are going on mm. in the case, um, and I, I, my argument is that rather than try to use, you know, is there economic interest or not to resolve these cases, there should be a much more thorough, transparent balancing of the interests that are actually at stake, which um, 
a lot of copy, a, a good chunk of copyright law, particularly fair use doctrine, already requires that type of balancing. But we're not seeing mm. um, a sort of a full range of consideration of plaintiffs' interests in these cases. Even though you see a little bit more consideration of defendants' interests uh, um, under several of the fair use doctrine factors. Yeah, and one, you know, and one thing that struck me as being potentially quite uncomfortable about the argument that you make in your paper is that, I mean, it seems to me that especially in recent years, as you point out in in your article, there's been sort of an a sort of a, an assumption or kind of growing received wisdom that the way to cabin the excessive expansion of the scope of copyright is by kind of amplifying the use of economic or market rhetoric. And it, it seems like your, your your paper really suggests that that's not actually as viable as people want to think it is. And in fact, it seems like the opposite is almost happening. Yeah. So I think it does. You know, if the goal is to cabin in copyright because it's gotten too expansive, this does cabin it, it in. But I'm not sure cabins it in for the right reasons. Um, okay. So that you know that if you can't show a a plausible market that you that you that is being impacted by this work, um, then you're out of the copyright system. That does exclude people um, who don't have a, an economic interest. Um, but what it does is that it amplifies the ability of of essentially wealthy copyright owners and copyright industries to protect their interests for whatever reason they want, so long as that they can point to a plausible market. And if, if all you need to do is point to a plausible market, then other interests like, uh, you know, free speech, um, academic research, news reporting on the defendant side, or privacy, uh, autonomy interests, um, something, some of the, uh, the, the, the interest of, uh, let's say, um, of errors on the plaintiff side, those tend to fall away. Um, and um, I would, if we want copyright to be a more inclusive uh, and democratic system, then I don't think the economic interest is going to do the work, uh, the necessary work to sort of engage with the difficult policy balances that are inherent in the system. Yeah, I mean, what really struck me was the way you kind of underscored how, you know, the way that in practice the use of kind of economic rhetoric plays out, it runs totally counter to what we would normally think of as being equitable outcomes. I mean, essentially, it seems like in practice that, you know, businesses or people with a significant market presence are practically speaking able to use economic rhetoric to achieve censorship or kind of quasi privacy goals whereas the sort of non public figure private people are effectively unable to do it and it seems like that's really out of whack with how we would normally think the equities would run and yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and I, my concern is that sometimes that there's a tendency to kind of lump together all non-economic interests as being censorship. So um, 
if we, th- you know, I, my concern is that we'll think about, let's say, um, a revenge porn copyright assertion as the same thing as, let's say, a business trying to kind of squelch negative reviews online. Um, uh, and if we think that all, if we can't, if we can't sort of, if we can't distinguish sort of an effort to protect your sexual privacy away from um, efforts to stop criticism on a matter of public concern, then I think there's some real problems in the system. I mean, there, there are real problems in this copyright system to begin with, but uh, I, I think there, it's important for us to sort of develop some degree of a, of a hierarchy of, of values on the plaintiff side to ask, what is it that we're protecting here? Um, and if we don't do that, um, then we get into a situation where um, we're excluding uh, people who could really use these rights to make their life better. We're excluding them on principle, but not on um, with a without much of a, I think, of a moral basis. Um, and yeah, yeah, and and I mean, it really struck me as well that I mean, it it seems like one of the kind of motivations for trying to move to this kind of or amplify this kind of economic rhetoric is to sort of make copyright protection and copyright enforcement more more neutral. Um, but it seems like there's kind of a sublimated normativity that pokes its head through regardless that, that you, you sort of kind of highlight in a lot of the examples in your paper. Yeah, I th- there is I – mean, one of the concerns I have is that it sure seems like what's – motivating the the use of 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 the market gibberish is the view of the parties um where it where for example uh, Brett Michaels seems to have a, a justifiable market interest in his um in his sexual privacy but Pamela Anderson does not and the I mean in the court sort of mentions that you know certain people are kind of known for their sort of sexual celebrity and others aren't and that they, that kind of gets used against them. Um, or when you have, um, you know, if the defendant, I'm thinking of in the, the Mons v. Maya case from the ninth circuit, where we have a defendant that uh, kind of stole photos from a, um, from a USB stick for the celebrities, like the, the, the court is, is very obviously, um, Concerned with the act with like the, the bad the, the bad actor on the defendant side, where, whereas mm-hmm. when we have a more legitimate um, news uh, news reporter on the defendant side, um, the court you know won't engage in that type of um, market gibberish. So there's a, there's a lot going on in these cases that I think gets flattened by uh, a sort of adherence to a strict economic incentives uh, narrative um, and. Um, you know, copyright law is already complicated and difficult to explain and to predict outcomes. And the more that we sort of insist on a a simple narrative, I think it actually becomes harder to predict. Right. So one 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 kind of question I had about the picture you draw of sort of how copyright economic rhetoric plays out in the courts is whether you think that the problem is fundamentally that courts are sort of relying too heavily on this framework in the first place or that they're doing it poorly 
right? That they're, that they're sort of using it as a fiction to achieve results that are inconsistent with what the sort of premise would suggest they ought to be reaching. Uh, so, I mean, there is, there is um, a fair amount of scholarship that's, that critiques some of the same cases that I do by saying that courts really aren't like for the, for example, like the J.D. Salinger uh, cases where courts are, where scholars are saying, you know, courts need to be much more rigorous about policing market interest, not, and not just um, looking at market harms, but market, but market benefits of, of a use, um, and that and that if the courts did that, then um, we would really be we'd be cabining in some of um, uh, some of the censorship. I mean, one, I, I do think that you know if you're going to if you are asserting a an economic interest, it should be plausible and real. Um, mm. But I am just, I, I have a hard time seeing how you actually in practice draw those lines between what is truly economic and what is not. Um, because oftentimes there's going to be, there's going to be a combination of, of, of interest at, at stake. And um, certain people are going to be able to point in the direction of, oh, look, we do have, a, there is a market. I could make money off of this. Um, uh, and those people will be able to, get their foot in the door in, in ways that other people can't. Uh, uh, so yes, I think the, you know, the economic uh, justification could be policed better, but I don't think that solves the problem. And I don't think it brings people into the system who went other way, who uh, otherwise could be in there and benefit from um, some of the, the remedies and that, that copyright provides that other areas of law don't quite as well. Yeah. So do you think that our kind of current theoretical models are built well to incorporate some of the kind of more privacy inflected normative values that that you're identifying and that clearly people do care about in many contexts or do you think we need to kind of reshape the model in some way in order to properly accommodate some of those values? I mean, I think that there is a, that there is a capacity in this area of law to accommodate multiple models. Uh, and, you know, I think there, um, there's often the, the scholarship is often framed in terms of you know, the utilitarians versus the natural rights theorists. Um, I don't think you need to, um, Collapse. You need to sort of be on one side of that that debate in order to have a functioning system. Um, and I also think that there are other theories, like uh, human flourishing theories, that are being developed um, that can incorporate sort of a, a mix of economic and non-economic interests. Um, and um, you know, the, the, the you know, I'm not. I don't see much upside in having. Sort of a, a sort of a theoretically pure approach to this area of law. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, people assert their interest in a creative work or uh, um, for a whole lot of reasons, uh, and uh, I think we should uh, we shouldn't close off those those um, those motivations um, just because it doesn't map onto a one particular theory of copyright protection. 
Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think, so one thing I was a little like not entirely sure of the answer to when reading your paper was, do you think that we should value some kinds of desires or demands from, from potential copyright owners more than others? Or is your point more that we should at least be cognizant of what values are really at stake rather than using this kind of language that just obscures them? In other words, you know, I guess how, how open-minded <laughs> should we be about the kinds of claims that people want to bring under the rubric of, of copyright or some sort of copyright privacy hybrid? Yeah. So I, so the immediate aim of the paper is the second point, um, which is to say, um, we need to be like more courts, courts and anything scholars as well need to be more transparent about what are the actual interests at stake. Um, but the reason to do that is to develop your first point, which is some is some a better sense of what is the hierarchy of values here. When does a privacy interest outweigh a free speech interest? When does an economic interest outweigh a free speech interest? Um, when does a reputational concern? Uh, you know, is there a difference between wanting to protect your commercial reputation versus wanting to protect your sexual privacy? And the, these are the, those type of um, ranking of, of interest, or and you know, I think that is beyond the scope of this paper. But I think that is mm-hmm. where the, the discussion jurisprudentially and scholarly needs to move. But we can't have that debate unless we first are transparent. But what are the actually interests on the table? Um, and to the extent that market gibberish makes it hard to actually have that discussion. That's what I'm trying to get at this paper is, is ability to say, okay, you know, where do our, where do our interests in privacy, economics, free speech, news reporting, how do these all fit together? Um, and you know, that is obviously a, a, a bigger project than I, I can do in one larger article. But um, I think that's, one of the, the the important takeaways from this is that you can actually start having that conversation once you're more transparent. Yeah. And that, you know, and one thing that really struck me about, about the argument that you made in the paper was the way in which in practice, the way that this market rhetoric is deployed often seems to be, and you really illustrate this very effectively, I think often seems to be like really callously dismissive of normative claims that it seems like we ought to be much more sympathetic to. Um, like whether or not you think copyright is the right way to get there, it seems like it's really doesn't reflect well on this sort of, <laughs> the, this sort of, um, how would I say, like the sensitivity of the courts, as it were. Yeah, so I think a good example of that is the, the Garcia v. Google opinion in the Ninth Circuit, which says, "Okay, um, Cindy Garcia, you uh, you don't have a copyright, you don't have copyright in your your, your performance, which that part of the opinion I'm okay with. But then we say you you haven't even been irreparably harmed in the copyright sense mm. um, um, through death threats and losing and loss of job opportunities and uh, etc." Uh, and the court, the court says, you know, you know, copyright can't be everything to everyone. Um, you know, maybe you could have a privacy, a, a privacy claim here. 
um, when the court fully knows that there isn't going to be a privacy claim there because the, here the claim is against Google because Google has uh, immunity under under Section 230. Um, so the courts are effectively, you know, knocking people out of any sort of of um, redress by saying they don't have a copyright claim. And the, but the reason they're doing that is is by is because you know copyright can't be everything for everyone, um, and it does. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't say much about our system where we're. If the legal system is more committed to theoretical purity than to actually making people's lives better, um, that doesn't seem like a good lit- litmus test for whether this is a good uh, a good document. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to to what extent do you think that part of the problem here is to use a phrase people have been like talking about lately, a sort of weaponized first amendment as it were sort of making courts broadly speaking and policymakers and sort of a broader kind of social rhetoric insufficiently sensitive to legitimate privacy concerns, whether sort of cashed out through copyright law or through some other vehicle. So this, this gets into the, this is a point I address in, in my uh, sex, death, and IP paper. Uh, I actually, so I actually think copyright law and IP law is a it can be an effective way of sort of threading the needle of responsiveness uh, to to real world world harms um, without blowing a hole in First Amendment protections and intermediary liability. Um, what it does, it says, okay. Here's a specific instance where my image is being used in a way that harms me. Uh, take it, take that down without have, without having to over police um, uh, more prospectively and shutting down the whole the whole system. So, but for example, like I, I think that um, you know, there's been some criticism of uh, some dating apps, like for example, Grinder has 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 there's some. Um, um, kind of revenge porn lawsuits against them. And, you know, I don't think that we should impose sort of standard tort liability on, uh, on, on platforms that are being, you know, in your words, weaponized. Um, but uh, what you can use, for example, a, a notice and takedown system um, under copyright to say, okay, when you know about this particular instance of this, of this image being used in a harmful way, Okay, um, we'll take it down without completely blowing a hole in the system. So, um, you know, if we are not, if we aren't going to even allow this type of uh, uh, IP rights to be doing this work, um, then we we have to get into these, I think, harder questions about um, do we have do um, you know into these kind of bigger questions of you know is the First Amendment um, you know worth the costs? Um, and I think it's, this is a narrower way of addressing that issue. Um, but if we aren't going to allow any non-economic interests onto the table at all, then, um, you know, that solution comes off the table. Yeah. And I couldn't help but wondering, like, to the extent you suggest that copyright could be, you know, irrespective of what we think about it kind of theoretically or doctrinally, a kind of practically effective way of accomplishing certain kinds of privacy goals, I couldn't help but wondering whether it might not suggests that we ought to think about almost kind of 
and forgive me for saying it, but like actually kind of expanding the scope of copyrightable subject matter or kind of para copyright to include what we might now sort of uncomfortably fit within a right of publicity type rubric and to say that maybe people should have some sort of copyright like, um, ownership or ability to control the use of especially images of themselves used in ways that are um, kind of normatively improper. Yeah. Where I increasingly find myself in, uh, you know, after doing these few papers is saying that is really thinking about um, giving more attention to publicity rights. I think either providing uniformity or just dealing with it at a federal level so that we can get some of the benefits of publicity rights without having complete uncertainty about its scope, uh, um, its duration, et cetera. Because, um, you know, there, there is an increasing, I think, sense that, that there is or should be some degree of ownership over, uh, our image. Uh, um, and, um, to the extent that we can use the law to kind of reflect people's understandings of their own bodies and their own likenesses, um, uh, then publicity rights, you know, so long as there are, you know, like fair use and first amendment like defenses, uh, can do some important work, um, cause people are doing it on the copyright side for almost the, for identical interests. Uh, and the only real difference between a, copyright revenge porn lawsuit and a publicity rights revenge porn lawsuit is who press record. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair, very fair point. Well, Andrew, it's been a real pleasure talking about your excellent and very, I must say, provocative article. Um, in closing, you, you want to say anything about what's, what's next? I mean, I'm always looking forward to your new papers. Uh, so what's up next is actually, um, so some of my, Previous work has been about uh, interest of heirs uh, in, in, and uh, in estates in the IP system. Um, so what I'm looking at now is actually a, uh, a comparison about how, um, about like who uh, IP regimes, publicity rights, and copyright give. Uh, I think of as legacy stewardship um, to compared to um, uh, other contexts like there's. Um, uh, a state planning law and there's a re- recently enacted digital um, uh, assets acts that um, all sort of prioritize different individuals within a person's life to decide how they, um, uh, how they are remembered. So basically um, next we're looking at the question of who gets to plan your social life after you die. Well, I can't wait to read it. Um, Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Brian.
time was 1935, the place, Tupelo, Mississippi. God sent this world a baby boy who was born in poverty. And as a boy, he wondered what would be his destiny. His life was to be busy, and things would happen that even he couldn't believe. He had so much to give, yet very little to receive. He started with a song and a wiggle, and some people couldn't understand. But you and I now know that it was all in God's plan. No sooner had he started than he was to lose his most precious prize. Tragedy struck this young man's life. His mother died. By this time, he had the colonel who was to guide his every step. And things begin to happen that neither one could seem to help. He came home from the army and we saw him on TV. And because of that wiggle, they wouldn't even show his knees. His career grew and he started making movies. And this took him from us for a while. Even though he didn't like it, he still gave the world a smile. Then he came back to us in person because to sing for his fans was what he really enjoyed. And when he felt that he didn't please us, with himself, he was annoyed. We demanded, not understanding, that he give to us his all. He tried to do what we wanted for the big and the small. The demand for his records or to have a glimpse or touch his hand. Bit by bit, this took its toll, for even he was just a man. Oh yeah, he was very happy living, and he wasn't afraid to die. Even now, though our hearts are broken, he wouldn't want us to cry. God and all of his wisdom, even though we loved him so, he knew what was best. We don't understand it, but it was time for him to go. Let you and I and our memory never lose what he gave, because while he was living for God and country, you and I, a slave. Yes, heaven now is brighter, though this world has lost the light. Take care of business. That's what he'd tell us. You must carry on the fight. Even his daddy and little Lisa, they must accept what God has done. Even though like our heavenly father, Vernon 
gave his only son. Now the show is over and the curtain has come down. Elvis has left the building but will always be around. Precious memories flood my soul.